Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Adam Parker with us with Morgan Stanley. Thrilled to have him here. We've been talking through the morning on television and Bloomberg surveillance, and he continues with us on radio. Sell in May and go away. That worked out. <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> Once the, again, yeah, those, what a bunch of baloney. <laughs> yeah, I, those things need like 10,000 more years to get statistical significance, I think. That's the problem. Yeah. I, I mean, but, but come on, it, to people take it seriously. Summer doldrums, you get out of the way. We just saw the DAX hit a, a bull market high. S&P is on fire. Dow is at 18,529 to fix re- visiting lows. How do you respond across Morgan Stanley's platform to people saying sell in May and go away with a straight face? You know, I, I, I think you've got to own something, right? And so when you look across... And you've been leading on that all the way. Yeah, when you look across the world... I, I think it's hard to allocate assets and not own a chunk of high-quality U.S. <clears throat> equities. I think that you've got too much buyback, yeah. too much dividend, and too much call option on growth to, to avoid. What do you mean by that call option on growth? I like that idea. Right now, we're forecasting 3.5% earnings growth. I don't know if it's going to be too high or too low, but I think you've got the potential for businesses in there in tech and healthcare and discretionary to have double-digit earnings growth underneath there. And so that, that, that seems better to me than Japan or Europe or EM or certainly the bond In the market. major message of that is the idea that corporations and what they do within our investment milieu are separate from the greater American experience. Starters are multinationals, but even if they're not, Danaher, I'll take as an example, I always use that within an industrial perfection, they're outside our normal economic calculus, aren't they? I I talk about this with our economist Ellen Zentner all the time. So she talks about the jobs report, it's roughly 180 million people, right? The top 1,500 public U.S. equities that I focus on as a strategist, they have around 38 million employees on U.S. soil. So I'm talking about only 20%. Uh, the, right. the jobs report. So there can be huge disconnects between the broader economy and what I, I care love that. about, I've which never is the heard stock that. market. Your yeah. world, uh, you know, big house equity, blue chip, mid cap skewed clearly. Your world is about 20% of non farm yeah. payrolls. Big, biggest 1,500 U.S. That's equities brilliant. are only 20%. So you've got to, <clears throat> the, the small and medium businesses and, and a lot of the policies right. don't apply to the big companies yeah. that you're talking about. You have tattooed to your brain standard deviations. You've got three degrees in statistics, a PhD from uh, Boston University, hugely prestigious effort there in statistics. Are we outside our deviations now? <laughs> Can you use normal statistics within the probabilistic structure you set up? Look, I think the challenge with all the work we do when you do quantitative work is that you're making some assumptions that history will unfold. Uh, as, sorry, the future will unfold somewhat like history did. You analyze history like crazy, and you say what period of history applies to the future. And I think you're right that in, in this world where we've created, what, $4 trillion on a computer to buy our own securities, maybe not all of the history will apply perfectly going forward. And that's a, that's a mm-hmm. real criticism of, of doing things very rigorously. How are corporate, I know you don't talk about individual stocks, but right. you're very aware of the leadership and the failures right. within the sectors you look at. How are corporate officers adapting to the great distortion? So I, I think it, they're really focused on 
uh, what to do with the capital and what the consequences of those movements will be. And historically, you could do you know capex or R&D. That remains muted for a lot of businesses because they're worried about putting excess capacity in place. Right? You can you can lever up. A lot of companies have done that. You could pay bound debt. Very few have, just given the rate yeah. environment. So then the other options, as you know, are are going to continue to be either M&A, which we've seen quite a lot of, and in in, in in certain areas, and then of course buyback yeah. dividends. I want to go there with M&A. Uh, Adam Parker with us with Morgan Stanley is. Uh, we look at this most interesting market, the VIX, eleven point three eight, right now. The M&A has been what I would call trophy M&A. Mm. And bolt-ons. There's been a real, I hate to use the word, but I'm going to use it, synergistic tactical acquisition. What's the next iteration? Is it more of the same or is there a new kind of M&A given the mix of cheap money and the high valuations we've got? Yeah, I, I think there's so much cash on the sidelines. I mean, there's just a quantum of cash. and that, Agreed. That combined with deals that I think are largely still accretive when you do the accretion math means you're still going to be... Uh, in a pretty pretty robust and probably growing M&A cycle. I mean, historically, I would have said, hey, if we get to all-time highs in the market, that'd be enough. There'd be dilutive yeah, acquisitions. Yeah, but uh, right, but it's not the case yet. There's so much cash and the borrowing cost is so low. So I think you're going to continue to look for right. cost synergies. You're going to look for uh, you know revenue contingencies and those kind of things. Right. As you know, the government's been involved in, in, in a lot of uh, deals as well, and so there's been some that have been tabled due to some yeah. you know, potential anti The other thing I get, Adam Parker, is this idea of what CFOs, chief financial officers, uh, will do. I get constantly the question, will they lever up? And, of course, Ellen Zentner heated about the debt expansion across all of the American economy. But I look at a given blue chip at 9 or 11 or 13 percent debt. Mm. You and I go back to Medigliani and Merton, and we know they're all the same. Come on, they're not. I mean, it's a model. I get that. Are we going to see a debt expansion by CFOs because they got a gun to their head saying do it? So we've already seen, you know, gross debt go up a lot. I think we'll continue to see it go up and term it out. But blue farther, chip farther. debt? I think so, particularly those companies you've seen that are borrowing against cash that's not on U.S. soil. You know, you've had that problem where the repatriation holiday has been, what, since 2004? Yeah. So they're waiting for another one to try to bring it back at a discount. And because they don't have that option, they're doing, you know, uh, uh, borrowing money and doing buybacks against that. You've seen it from some of the very big blue chip companies. About a third of the whole debt stack that's been added has been from, I would yeah. call, blue chips. I mean, yeah. I bring it up on Bloomberg, and, you know, we, we have a nice model. No, excuse me. Let me rephrase that, folks. We have a fabulous fabulous model on the Bloomberg of weighted average cost of capital. I usually pick on Colgate just because it's toothpaste and I don't own it. <laughs> the idea of debt cost, 9.1% weight, cost 1.0%. You and I, when we studied this stuff, never thought we'd see that. Right. Yeah, I, I think, <clears throat> honestly, it's another way of saying uh, you probably should buy some more stocks. You know, uh, just because the um, uh, attractiveness of most of the credit markets seems pretty pretty challenged to me. So, look, if cost of capital is low, you can make some investments, you can you know, buy back your stock, you can increase your dividend. I don't want to be too cynical, but I know you love this stuff, but I think some of it, particularly below the blue chips for companies 200 through 1,000, right. some of it comes down to the variable compensation of the C-suite, right? If you have restricted stock units and you get dividends on that unvested portion of your deferred, incentive. you love the divvy. If you have options, you hate dividends because it mathematically devalues them by definition. So I think, yeah. it, you know, it 
it, it can be a lot of factors. Tie goes to the runner <clears throat> on what you do there, right? No, so, I, yeah, I agree, yeah. and I, I applaud your cynicism because it actually happens to be true, yeah. and that that people are managing their flow of cash based off their compensation. Some people would say that's part of the game, and everybody knew that going into these compensation right. uh, agreements. But the, the, the general question, and we'll talk to Barry Ritholtz about this in a bit, the, the general question to me is what do you do in a portfolio given a 25 multiple land? So, yeah, what I've been doing is really trying to pair trade the, the portfolio around the big macro bet. So on rates, look, if you, if you say to yourself, Hey, every defensive stock's expensive. Utilities, REITs, telcos. I'm, and you say I'm out. And then I like financials because they're cheap. And so your overweight banks, your underweight utes, telcos, and REITs, all, and staples, all you're really doing is gambling in the interest rates back up. Exactly. And if they don't, you're going to be a bottom, you know, desktop so performer. So this is critical. Your equity strategy is hinged to Ellen Zentner, and is it Harbach? Your Hornbach. 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 Excuse I, me. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Act, what I do is I go rate neutral. I say, okay, I'm overweight utilities. I'm underweight staples, uh, or I'm, I'm overweight biotech because I like the growth there, but I'm underweight software. I try to find some growth that looks attractive and a growth that looks unattractive. Some rate sensitive looks attractive. Rate sensitive looks unattractive. So I don't propagate a massive okay. rate bet or a ma So it, it, it's <clears> not that it, certainly their views influence mine, or we you know we certainly influence each other. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't think you can propagate that bet as a portfolio manager because, right. you know, I think you've seen a lot of body bags uh, in the last five years trying to make uh, the rate call back and off. Uh, it has, yeah. been, it has yeah. been brutal. Tom Keen and Michael McKee, McKee off uh, today. Joining me today, Barry Ritholtz, writing for Bloomberg View, among other things. Is Barry, are you long the market right here? Are you buying into the 25 multiple world? Well, you know, if, if we rely solely on P.E. multiple to make investment decisions, it means half the time you're, you're more or less out of the market. Fair, fair value is something we stop at briefly while swinging to wildly undervalued or wildly overvalued. So that's not determinative. We are long the market. We have been fans of emerging markets, which was a painful trade up until a short period of time. And our asset allocation approach is right. own everything, uh, hope for the best, plan for the worst, and yeah, don't sounds, try and guess. I love that. It sounds like the Red Sox approach. Barry Ritholtz, <laughs> why don't you jump in here with Adam Parker of Morgan Stanley? Sure. So I know, Adam, you are in a different side of, of the investment world from what we do, and I'm really curious as to what you're hearing from clients. You wrote something that I thought was fabulous not too long ago about when everybody's a contrarian, nobody's a contrarian. What are you hearing from your clients these days? Look, I, I think uh, what Tom said is right. You know, people are not uh, particularly enthused about this bull market. You don't see positioning uh, in futures or in, uh, you know, if I look at our, our prime brokerage business, uh, the hedge fund exposures don't look that robust in terms of grosses or nets. So I, I think this is a, a, a sort of a hated, a hated rally of 20% since February lows, to be honest with you. And, and we've had a run of, uh, of billionaires coming out, everybody from Jeff Gunlock to Druckenmiller to Soros to, to Bill Gross, sell everything, they seem to be saying. But do we really see market tops associated with the sort of sentiment you're describing? Look, I don't believe anybody uh, can forecast a price-to-earnings ratio for the market in short time frames. 
And so I, I agree with how you, you, you sort of positioned it. I, you know, one, one of the things we did I thought was the most, one of the more interesting notes we've ever written, and I've been doing this for 20 years, is I got a room full of smart people like you guys together, and I said, what do you want to know a year from now? And you guys listed off, you know, a jobs report and twos, tens and oil and housing starts and all the facts. And then I pretended that I had all that information a year before everyone else, and I just backwarded the, the market. And, and had the data, right. and I still only had a 50-50 chance of knowing if the price-to-earnings ratio even expanded or contracted. So I think it's very tough to call. I think you've always got to. Uh, I think you've got to have very high conviction to get completely out of the market. That's that's kind of my view. That's a, that's a, a a pretty rational approach. Saying, well, you really have to uh, have a deep and strong belief uh, to get completely in the market. But this bull market since since the crisis lows. We've seen those sort of post-conviction, post-crisis convictions amongst people who were convinced we were heading back to those lows and, oh, and fairly on. quickly. I'm sitting here with Adam Parker, Morgan Stanley, Barry Ritholtz. You're two of the people, I think of Tony Dwyer and a few others, who throughout thick and thin have said go to cash is stupid. I mean, I, I get the idea of a little bit of cash. And Barry, I know you've done the metric there. David Kotak has done that as well. I, I mean, it has been a wall of worry market. Where would you be on cash right now with an institutional portfolio? I, I think it's tough. Uh, I think it's really tough. I mean, uh, there's enough other uh, gray hairs in this room that you guys all realize. Watch it. We, we started in this <laughs> business. Started. No, I feel like you know, I'm 47. I feel like I'm older than most of the people I meet with these days. And but uh, when I started working, I got eight percent in my cash account uh, at, at my firm, and uh, I think you get zero spot zero four today. So. Uh, you know, um, we used to all have your number. You got to make a certain amount of money, and then you live off the interest. Right. Good. That number's like a, Barry. Where are that, you? That on number's this? a trillion now. Where are you on cash? <laughs> you know, we always run one percent. We always run a one percent cash, just so you have a little right. uh, a little room to maneuver when it comes time that's to rebalance. Your, that's for your case of Jenny Cremail on Friday. The uh, oh, terrible, terrible. <laughs> yeah, look, you know, history is replete with examples of people trying to get out of the market at the right time avoid some sort of collapse, and then make the 180 and get back in. And Which, there is, harder? Are vi- Which is harder, to get out of the market or get back in? Um, I'm a little different than most people. I find bottoms are a big flashing red light. It's a screaming, you know, everybody hates everything. That's the time. And, and March 09 was one of those generational opportunities. Getting out at the top requires you to sell when everything is still looking pretty good. You agree? So I think it's a tougher call to get out. I find I find everything difficult myself. Uh, you know, because getting back in I'm not saying it's toughest. easy. You know, I I'm saying lot, it's I think a lot of people that I know that have, you know, made hundreds of millions or billions of dollars personally investing mm-hmm. Have told me that they're not afraid to buy things when they're up a lot. That they they can buy a the stock's gone two to ten. They buy to ten, it goes to twenty. They're totally happy. So right. I I kind of I guess I have a small bias toward toward agreeing because okay. you know you sometimes want to ride you, it long time. Yeah. You have been more than generous with your time, Adam Parker with Morgan Stanley. Next time he's on, we will speak on kurtosis. Barry Ritholtz, Tom King, globally. This is Bloomberg. Barry Ritholtz here. I want to carve out some time across all the surveillance this morning to really go one-on-one uh, with Barry. Barry, you write different kinds of columns. You write equity columns. You write compendiums of mustery columns. Mm-hmm. And then every once in a while, you write something that borders on public service where you ought to be paid by the U.S. government. <laughs> you just did that 
on something you and I have observed for years. Investor education slips into reverse. Barry, I'm sorry, it's not news forever. Investor education has slipped into reverse. Yeah, the fascinating thing about this is there have been a number of attempts to make the investing public smarter, better educated, have a better grasp of what is going on with their investment capital. And pretty much study after study shows that we that is a Sisyphean task. We are rolling Sisyphean. the boulder uphill, and every time we feel like we've made a little bit of progress in educating investors as to what to do with their money, back downhill rolls the boulder. And we learn this through reality. My experience with this first is a name from the past, Vanita Van Caspel. Mm-hmm. who wrote a brilliant book years ago about common sense investing. And I was like eager, be- I was way younger folks, like think younger. And I bought a million books to get people smarter because of Vanita Van, nobody, nobody read it. No, uh, nobody had any, they'd say, I need to get smarter, tell me what to do. And so I'd tell them what to do and they wouldn't do it. <laughs> the, my favorite book that actually affects the way people behave in investing is Charlie Ellis's yes. winning the losers game who uses the metaphor of tennis. If you're a professional player in tennis, you win by scoring points, but most of us are not professionals. Most of us are amateurs and amateurs lose due to unforced errors. And the parallel between investing in tennis is, is surprisingly easy to grasp. Most investors lose money by unforced errors. We talked before about every some billionaires are saying sell everything. Yeah. The average guy in the street is not going to be able to do that, is not going to okay. be able to get back in, and the taxes are going to kill them. Fold this over to the disaster known as the American Retirement Program. What do I need to know to do a smarter 401k? Uh, it's really very straightforward and very simple. You, you want to be invested for the long term. You want to have a global asset allocation, meaning you're not going to guess U.S. stocks or bonds or emerging markets. You own everything, and some years the U.S. will do better than emerging <clears throat> markets or developed right. ex-U.S. You want to go low-cost indexing where possible. And the most important thing is keeping those internal expense ratios as low as possible. Okay, how do the people doing that quickly here, how do they listen to Bloomberg surveillance or watch Bloomberg surveillance religiously, use that information, but not let it impinge on a more responsible adult approach instead of panicking every time I say something stupid? Well, we've actually been seeing some people, many people, following up that advice and acting responsibly. And we see it in the flows to firms like BlackRock and Vanguard and Dimensional Funds that are very strong in either factor investing, which is a whole nother discussion, but let's just call it basic index investing. Uh, You know, before the crisis, Vanguard, no slouch, was nearly a trillion dollar company. Well, here it is, less than a decade later. We're coming up on $4 trillion, <clears throat> okay. two-thirds of which are passive index. I am going to be sure that this conversation with one B. Ritholtz gets out on our iTunes podcast because Barry Ritholtz is the podcast giant, and I want to just steal some of the thunder. <laughs> Barry Ritholtz with us, and I really want to touch upon a wonderful thing that Barry did. His market wizards 
uh, his, his Masters in Business podcast is superb. And you just had one of my favorite people on, uh, Barry, for your 100th episode, Jack Schwager. When he came out, people thought it was a joke. This guy's not going to give me any wisdom. And then you opened up the first edition of Market Wizards, and every page was a jewel of not what to do, Barry Ritholtz, but Jack Schwager owned what not to do from it, person to person to person. It helped me so much. When I started in this career, I began on a, on a trading desk, and trading, they pretty much throw you in the deep end of the pool, and whoever doesn't drown becomes a trader. One of the first books I was given, and in fact, the first book I was given was Market Wizards. And it impressed upon me a number of things. Probably more than anything else is the importance of process over outcome. Yes, what they call setup. That's right. If you, if you, you know, the worst thing that could happen to any human being who, who, who likes to speculate is to walk into a casino and win. They spend the next 40 years going back for that dopamine hit and that free money. Trading is about process. It's about setting up and doing right. the same things correctly over and over again. And what's so important, and Dennis Gartman with us later on this is, is brilliant as well, trading is a, a process or thing that can be done over various time frames. Trading doesn't mean Monday to Friday. That, that's exactly right. It's It's... You have to, you know, it's funny when we watch people debate, we see these arguments on Twitter and elsewhere. Very often, people are just having time frame debates. Oh, you do this, this, and this. Right. No, that's a terrible idea. You do that. Well, if your holding time is an hour and my holding time is a decade, we're looking <clears throat> at different things. The process is very different, The uh, as well as the things that you have to emphasize or de-emphasize. Exactly. Within my setup, I had fundamentals. Um, technicals and economics. And depending on the time frame, you weighted those three general statements differently. That's right. My time frame is I look at valuation, I look at market cap size, and I look at quality. Uh, traditional factor investing, because thanks to the work of uh, Eugene Fama and Ken French, we know those things, amongst others, will right. outperform <clears throat> over the long haul. How do you use technical analysis? I use it not so much to say, do this, but I use technical analysis to tell me when there's a froth there or it's overbought or depending which way you're going, where technical analysis helps me to say, don't do this. You know, history has shown us that there is never any one thing that will tell you to buy right. this or sell that. So I use charts, I use momentum and trend and technicals in combination with sentiment. So when everything starts to line up, when the, when the board starts turning red, when all the warning signs are flashing at once, that's when you know to pay close attention. Using any one thing can lead to a lot of false positives, and, and that's how we sometimes yeah. get this sell everything. We saw it in 2010, we saw it in 2013, we're seeing it again. Eventually it'll be right. But if it, you're, you've missed five years of a move higher in whatever the asset class is, the early calls just didn't do you any favors. Where do you focus most on individual stock selection, on a sector, whether a narrow sector or a broader sector, or do you try to look at 30,000 feet? We're, we're the 30,000-foot view. We're the asset allocators. The thing that we focus most on is trying to identify 
what vehicles will let us express an investment thesis most efficiently at the lowest cost with the greatest diversification without well, over-diversifying? I mean, we're really in the weeds here now, but ultimately, if I'm investing for 10 or 20 years, right. sometimes a dumb index works well, sometimes a little more sophisticated index with, with a little little spice on it can generate a better return at a lower cost. Right. Barry Ritholtz and Tom Key, Michael McKee off this week. And now joining us, D. Gartman. We like Dennis Gartman because he is eclectic. We like Dennis Gartman because he has a courage to put his trades in the back of his newsletter, right or wrong. We like Dennis Gartman because he is an inherent optimist. Dennis, you're long cotton. I, I, are you long cotton? Is that right? He is long of cotton. Long of long, cotton. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. And, uh, <laughs> proper way to, and, and Barry, good, good to, uh, to, to talk with you this morning. Old yes. Friend. It's like an A.G. Becker redux from a million years ago. Inform our well, audience why cotton is going to go from the lower left to the upper right. Well, cotton has been already going from the lower left to the upper right, although today it is going down rather harshly. Um, and and I want, I've been waiting to buy this sort of break. It's down today because of a decision, well, actually a continuation of a series of decisions by the reserve authorities in China to to offload a great good deal of the cotton that they hold in reserves. The, the spinners over there have, have noticed a a, a very sharp increase in demand for cotton, they, or demand for their yarn. They need cotton, and the authorities have held a lot of cotton in reserve. They've released some of that. They've done it in the past before, over the course of the past several months, and every time they've done it, uh, cotton closed lower for the day, and two or three days later was trading substantially higher. The cotton crop here in the United States is a little bit behind uh, the way it has been in history compared to how great the corn and soybean crops are doing. And I think that what you're seeing is a narrowing also of the term structures in the cotton market. I think it's time to be bullish of cotton. Uh, I, I, I grew up in the cotton business. So it was my first job out of graduate school back in the early 1970s. And here at, at, at these prices for cotton, when you've got them down into the, to the low 67 cent area or so, compared to where cotton has been over the course, course of the past several years, and having built what appears to me to be about a two-year base, I think the risk-reward is relatively mm -hmm. minimal. I think you're risking two or three cents on the downside. I think you're looking at 15 to 25 cents on the upside. And I think it's a bet on economic strength basically around the world. So, yes, I'm bullish of cotton, and I've waited for this sort of break to put out a recommendation to buy it. So, so let's talk a little bit about other things that might not have as clear a risk-reward trade. Uh, I have to immediately go to oil. Where are we and, and what's going on with uh, crude? Barry, I think it's still a bear market in the crude oil market. Uh, crude is, is bouncing thus far in the course of the past several days. I think we've been up four or five days in a row. But if you look at a chart, and if, more importantly, if you look at what I term the contango, the carrying charge in, in crude oil, the contangos are still wide. Contangos widen up during bear markets. I think we've been in a protracted bear market now for the course of the past year and a half. Rallies have consistently failed, and I think the ability for crude to sustain anything more than another dollar and a half to the upside is, is, is almost unimaginable. Yes, it could. 
Uh, and, and you got a good rally yesterday predicated upon the announcement by the Qatari oil minister that, they, that OPEC was going to have a, an, a, a rather surprising meeting uh, alongside a long-established uh, uh, group meeting in, in uh, September to discuss the possibilities of a freeze in production. But will that, ha- will that happen? Will they actually freeze production? I think not. They're fearful. The other uh, OPEC members are fearful that Iran will continue to expand its supply of crude oil. And the only reason you're getting any rally in crude is two things. One, a heavy short position on the part of money, managed money. And two, the continued deterioration in Venezuela and Nigeria of their production. But the Iranians intend to fulfill or take the place of anything that the, that the Nigerians and the Venezuelans cannot supply. I think it's still a bear market. The contangos continue on balance to widen, and as long as that occurs... You sell strength, you don't buy weakness. So, so in other words, even as demand has slowly improved over the past few years, the overwhelming rush of supply continues to be driving price. I think that's exactly what's going on. We continue, yes, production here in the United States is down a little bit, down half a million barrels from, from half a million to 600,000 barrels from where it was a year ago. But the amount of crude that can come back to the market on any further 2 or $3 rally uh, here in the United States from frackers who have closed some of their wells. I think they call them ducks, drilled but uh, uncompleted. The amount of ducks that can be quickly expanded is rather enormous. And, and the Iranians clearly right. intend to ramp up their production. So, yes, it's a supply concern uh, and, and not that much of a demand concern. Yeah. And I'd mention, folks, with great cheer at Bloomberg Surveillance, we like different opinions. And there is no greater disparity now than on uh, the discussion of where oil will go. Dennis, let's talk about uh, the equity markets. We'll have you back here in our next section as well. You are one of the pinatas on this because you're so visible and so clear on long or short. What do you do as a grizzled pro when you're whipsawed like it's been recently? Use puts if you're a law, if you're buying stock, and I, I own some. I, I own an aluminum company here in the United States, but I own it with puts underneath it. I think that's the only way that one can trade. If you're long, you buy puts to protect yourself because volatility is very low and, and insurance is very cheap. If you're short, you buy calls against it because volatility is very low and insurance is cheap. I think that's the only way that one can trade. What do you do then, Dennis, with the comfort of dividend growth in PEs 20 to 25? How do you handle this, this, this religion on American multinationals? Well, I, 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 for one, will avoid anything with a price-to-earnings multiple above 20. I'm not going to buy that no matter what happens to me. Dividends are important. People forget how important dividends are, although I guess the importance of dividends is getting ramped up here in the course of the past one or two years. As I and others of my age are, are, are nearing retirement, dividends suddenly become far more important. But am I going to buy any stock that has a price-to-earnings multiple of more than 20? Somebody else can. I yeah. won't. Uh, as I said, I, I, I like to own the things very prosaic. I like to own the things that if I drop them on my foot will hurt. Right. Steel, coal, <laughs> ships, trains, that sort of thing. One of the jewels of market economics resides at Morgan Stanley, working with Ellen Zentner, Adam Parker, and the others. His name is Ted Weissman. And he has just written, without question, the research report of the day. I'm not going to send it out. Contact Morgan Stanley. We protect the copyright of our guests. On productivity, as bad as expectations for productivity have become, Q2 still managed 
to significantly disappoint. He goes on in minute detail to frame a different America, and it is a subpar America. Dennis Gartman with us of the Gartman Letter. Dennis, you and I know this productivity conundrum is a huge, huge deal, and it wanders down to the certitude of sub-2% GDP and all that goes with that in wages and labor. Can the politicians in Washington deal with that? It's it's unacceptable to political America, isn't it? They, they it, it, it should be unacceptable political to political America. It should be unacceptable to middle America. It should be unacceptable to lower class America. It should be unacceptable to everyone. The problem is that in, in, in the great book by Mr. Gordon, The Rise and Fall of the American Growth, we, we have changed, and, and things are changing. The great ability to become more productive uh, through the, the entire part of the 20, 20th century and into the early part of the 21st century may well be behind us. I would like to be as optimistic as I can be, but I'm afraid I can't be. Uh, we have replaced people with machinery. We have replaced machinery with computers, and we're going to replace more and more people with more machinery and more computers but as we leave, as, as baby boomers leave the, the job market, you're losing expertise, you're losing capabilities, you're replacing older workers with experience, with newer workers without, and you always have a problem with productivity. Let us hope that that J-curve moves the other direction over the course of the next several years, but I must tell you I have my doubts, and I'm afraid that the political arena, the political leaders have no idea how to deal with the problem. Today's number was, I thought, terribly dismaying. Everybody had hoped that the productivity numbers would increase in the second quarter, and instead they decreased. And if there's a number that bothered me that we have seen economically in the course of the past several weeks, that's the worst. So, so Dennis, are you a believer that we are actually getting an accurate and complete measure of productivity gains uh, amongst American workers? Well, no. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a great believer that the data is as good as it can be because it's hard to measure uh, everybody knows how much better we are with computers, but how do you how do you measure productivity? For example, uh, I write a daily newsletter every day on economics and political developments around the world. Fifteen and twenty years ago, I was ahead of the, the uh, I was ahead of everybody because I read the China People's Daily three days late that I got in hard copy, but nobody else even read it uh, at all. I read it three days late. Now you can read it online in, within moments of its release. That is an increase in productivity, but how does one measure that? Uh, today I spent time talking about how good automobiles are compared to older automobiles. My first automobile that I owned in 1967 was a 1966 Plymouth Valiant, which was a wonderful car, and it was a great money saver getting 13 did, miles to the gallon. Automobiles did, nowadays get 29, stop. 32, 35 did miles you ever gallon. Put, That's an increase in productivity. Did you ever put the screw in the distributor to blow out the distributor cap and all that? I did that twice. Uh, I had an Austin Healey that I had to, that I had to take the distributor cap off and, and, and use a hairdryer when it was even slightly <laughs> misty in order to get it started. But, God, it sounded so good when it did start that it, I was happy to do he that. Must, he must have been a girl magnet with an Austin Can, can I tell you, if you want to talk about productivity disca- destruction, we could talk about just about any British sports car. Those were productivity killers. So let me, let me change it up on you a little bit and move from productivity to gold. We, we saw gold peak five years ago. 
It suffered a 35 or 40% collapse. But if you were invested this year in gold or if you invested in the gold miners, it's done very, very well. Is this the start of something new or is this just a bounce after been down so long it looks like up to me? What, what a great book that was by uh, Joan Baez's brother-in-law. Been down so long that it looks like up to me. Um, trying to remember who it was that wrote that, but it was a wonderful book. Um, and, and I think I, I'm not a gold bug. Let's begin by saying that I'm not a gold bug. I, I'm not the believer that the world is coming to an end. I think gold is nothing more than another currency. And as an ex-foreign currency trader, I was always taught to trade one currency relative to another. I trade gold relative to the currencies that I think are going to be weaker than the others. I think the euro is in very dire straits, and I think that owning gold relative to the euro or predicated in euro or denominated in euro is the proper course of action. Gold in euro terms has been going up now for two and a half years. Gold in dollar terms has only been going up for six months. It may well still be a bear market in gold in dollar terms. It is clearly a bull market for gold predicated in euro terms. And I think the Europeans have no choice but to continue to be far more expansionary as far as monetary policy is concerned than shall be the Federal Reserve Bank. Yeah. If that's true, and I think that is true, gold is going to be higher in, in euros than in dollars. I'd like to own gold. I'd like to be short euros. Dennis, have you been asked by Mr. Trump to be part of his economic policy team? I, I hope not. I have not. I would not serve. If called upon, I will not serve. <laughs> Let's finish up, uh, Dennis Gartman, before I get back to Barry, with your view on the European banks. Somebody said to me yesterday, what's the one thing you're watching? It's still the European banks. I yeah. mean, when do they clear? How do they clear? I don't think they clear for years and years into the future. They can try to throw what they can. They will continuously push reserves at them. They will try to bail them out, but I think they are unbailable. And therefore, I think the only thing that the European monetary uh, community can do, the leaders can do, is continue to expand reserves into the system. I think it's a very bleak black hole that will only get worse as we go forward. New banks will take their place. And it is sad to see great banks such as uh, Monte Depashi, the world's oldest bank, uh, and a former and one-time fully paid-up subscriber to the, to the Garmin letter, I will, will say, because uh, I love the name, uh, will probably fall into oblivion. I don't think there's anything mm -hmm. that can be done to save the banks, most of them that exist right now. Sure, Deutsche Bank will continue. Yeah. Uh, the other majors will continue, but there's going to be a right. number of them that have to be let go. They can't be salvaged, Dennis, I'm, I'm afraid to say. Dennis Gartman, thank you so much. The Gartman letter, be careful out there. Dennis, uh, always brave. And again, uh, with a trading cotton, cotton is what the Three Stooges would say, cotton, very cotton. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg.